Um, welcome to Angel Wing Podcast. This is Sachin Karnik here with Dr. Elizabeth Berman. We are continuing our exploration on the question of identification. We have been looking at identity formation. We talked about that last time. So I have some follow-up questions for Dr. Berman on this. Every human being develops a psychological identity in different culture, different place, different time, circumstance, et cetera. That identity is necessary. Without that, we cannot function in this world. Nonetheless, there is quite a bit of uh, limitation imposed just by staying with that identity. So the question about the self, who am I? And this is something that we'll be talking about in the workshop on Tuesday. And we'll be uh, going into that. What am I? Who am I? This question of identity really comes into play. So my question is, what does a person do to, to recognize the limitations of the psychological identity? Well, there's some basic, <clears throat> some basic things that I think are pretty important in terms of putting a framework on how really am I approaching my life and answering also, how am I approaching answering a question, the question, who am I? And it is to be aware, right? So how can we answer a question, who am I, unless we are motivated to be aware of what we're thinking and what we're feeling in basically any moment, right? So much of the time we live in a world that encourages us to be with ourselves in a way that we don't really tune into what's going on inside until something's going wrong, right? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not often aware of where my feet are and are going when I'm walking, because so, I walk a dog twice a day, right? How often do I actually, am I actually aware of my feet? You know, where are they going? Are they, uh, however, if I stub my toe and it's throbbing and every time I step down, it pushes against the edge of my shoe, I'm pretty aware of that toe. And so that's what I mean about being aware before something goes wrong. Be, becoming more self-aware before there's pain and suffering. So I would say that that example is about the physical body, but we also have our mental energies, right? We can call it the mental body, but it's our experience of ourselves through thought. We also have emotional energy, right? We have experience of ourselves through our emotions. And when we begin to get serious about <clears throat> who am I, what do I want to accomplish while I'm here on earth in this body? Um, we, it begins to dawn on us, maybe I ought to figure out what's going on. 
because perhaps I'm going to want to change some things. And yes, when we start to recognize, oh my gosh, when such and such happens, my usual re reaction is whatever. And that really is getting me in a lot of trouble. That's really wasting time, right? If I'm always frightened when I hear very, very loud noises, right? There's this whole thing going on in my body. And I, actually it can get to the point where I can begin to develop illnesses. I can begin to have panic attacks. So I would offer to you that my answer to that question of how do we become more aware of what's the parts of us that are holding us back is to be is to set a value that says, I want to be consciously aware of my thoughts and my feelings, my emotions. I want to, and when that happens, it becomes very obvious that a skill to be able to be present to something without judging it and having that thing then uh, trigger another reaction in me is critical. So for me, that's the work, right? To be aware, to learn, to catch myself. What am I thinking in this moment? What am I feeling in this moment? What am I actually doing physically in this moment? And then to be able to be with whatever it's there when it feels good, we like being there. We like being more aware when we're feeling good. We don't like being more aware when we're just knotted up inside. We want to get out of that as fast as we can, right? So we try to avoid it. We try to sublimate, do all these psychological things to move away from things that don't feel good. Okay, so so I have a, so I have a question here. There is this notion of um, of a toxic identity. Yep. What does that mean? As a psychologist, what do you think that means? To me, yeah. what that means is there are aspects of ourselves <clears throat> that either we or the people around us think are toxic. Their habits, their patterns, their repetitive reactions to things and people that take us and the people around us into experiences that are not very healthy. And by healthy, I mean conducive to growth. Mm -hmm. They're right. not conducive to growth because they're contracting, they're shutting down, they're either violence to self or the other, and the violence can come in words, actions, emotions. We, we know that certain emotions, our, our brain hears what the mind is thinking about things and tries to then send chemicals in, biochemicals through the body to make the body be correspond to congruent with the thoughts we're thinking. So if we're, I'm thinking, I'm in danger, I'm in danger, I'm in danger, then my body's gonna throw me into fight, flight, freeze mode. And when I go into that mode, all the, 
the nurturing, relaxing, growth-promoting hormones are shut down. So I can get ready to run and run away. That's not healthy. So that in recognizing what things, what are our patterns and habits? And sometimes we're not even aware of them until somebody tells us about them. I would say that's, those are toxic aspects of us. And if we identify with them, then it's a toxic identity. Okay, all right. So if you were to go further in this to become even more clear about what we're talking about, in psychoanalytic theory, uh, the component of personality that contains the instinctual or biological drives, you know, that's, uh, that component that supplies the psyche with its basic energy. So in, in traditional psychoanalytic theory, there's a component of one's personality that has instinct, biological drives. It, it, there's energy involved in that, like the, the, the libido. And then from- Are you talking about the id? <coughs> yes. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> yes, I'm talking about the id. I'm talking about, I want to ask you about the id in relation to this sense of personality, the sense of me that we don't want within ourselves. <coughs> so many people have certain aspects of themselves that are very much related to the id, the instinctual process, uh, the ego process, the pleasure principle, et cetera. These are primary processes at times are, are thought about. But, but individuals don't want that. They want to try to get out of that. So uh, we talk about identification and then de-identification. So this transition from identification with those primal processes, with those, um, uh, those uh, uh, Freudian type of uh, uh, ideas, how does a person move out of that? Because what we see in today's world, people are driven by pleasure, they're driven by the id, they're driven by impulses and instantaneous gratification and all that kind of stuff. And, and it is, and in certain cases, it's causing a certain, uh, quite a bit of problems and difficulty. You know, so the, uh, can you talk about this phenomena that we call the id and the libido and the pleasure principle and all? How does that relate? And what, what is that in relation to personality, identity? Let's start with that, and then we can, I can ask you some series of questions after that. Well, all right, traditional or classic psychoanalytic theory, at least Freud, postulated a closed energy system. And I take issue with that. They're yeah. not a closed energy system. Right. So for me, there's a flaw in, in the assumption that built that theory. And, and therefore, whatever, I, I just note that. Okay, <laughs> I take sure. issue with Freud's theory as a closed energy system. We are sure. not closed energy systems. And, and it, with all the technology and the imaging, and we can image what's going on in the brain these days, we know why we're not a closed energy system. We're actually a gregarious species. We, by age two, 
mirror neurons are developed in the front part of our brain and and we show compassion because we experience we are capable of experiencing what the other is experiencing so to get back to the id as it's classically talked about the instincts the the primal drive the pleasure principle i would just say that in some ways that's semantics you know we're in a human body and these human bodies have a human mind which identifies things in the world me i am in this envelope of skin because i identify things outside of this envelope as not me right so we're working with duality here so without i i don't know pleasure only has meaning when you have that which is not pleasure right so to begin to look at the biology of a person and have some sense of understanding of how that works and 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 the miraculous really um way in which the body supports us when we're able to give it what it needs when it needs it and not let it fall into chronic illness either in the mind or the body we the pleasure principle um how do i want to say it or instinct instinctually we want to live we don't want to die so when something i put something in my mouth that that everything in my body you know wants to spit it out throw it up whatever it is that's the instinct to stay alive because to have something that violent happen to my tongue in my mouth my body's telling me hey babe this is poisonous don't, don't do it right yeah exactly so that's not bad right right exactly and 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 if it's not bad does it mean it's good well it's natural it's a way to keep us safe right it's just that through learning through what the culture tells us through our experiences in early childhood we start putting labels on things that may or may not have been accurate when we learned them but they're certainly not accurate some of them are no longer accurate as adults because we're different people as adults than we were as children so to understand a biological need for procreation which is to keep the species going right yes if we are in a culture that teaches us that is necessary for the species to survive but it is not necessary for me already here to survive and so if the only way i can enact that is through harm to another it's not a good idea right so it's not that the the biological urges or needs are bad the it's not bad it's just a label that was given to those um 
aspects of human beings that when they're out of control, society says, shame on you. No, no, don't do that. But if we think, well, I'm above the law or I'm, you know, I have my own ways of doing this, then we can get into trouble. But that's different than the biology of our being being bad. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So on that point, self-preservation is natural. It has it. All right. Could we say that self-preservation is needed up to a certain stage, certain point, I mean, that, that is, that's needed in life. But, but that same tendency for self-preservation, that same programming has gone into realms of human civilization that is responsible for further enclaves, groupism, conflict, nationalities, racism, that that sense of self has now gotten bigger and then is creating, has created tremendous amount of division where that instinct has, has expanded beyond just the instinct. Yes. Can, uh, can you elaborate on what you think that means? Well, you know, I would say the way you were speaking of how it can go wrong, or if, you know, again, we're using language which is based on duality, right? It, it can result in genocide. And it depends upon which side of the line that gets drawn of who gets eliminated and who gets to rule that you're on, whether you think this is good or bad idea, right? And see, and see, as you mentioned that, that, that raises the whole question about the self, that, that the self we consider is like, okay, me, the individual me, that's one thing. But then that self really is within a certain community, within a certain group, within a certain belief, within a certain ideology. So that self is... Is has an is within an enclave of a system. Yes, and and I would say to you, what came to mind is one one time somebody was explaining something to me, a, a, a mentality. I think they called it a tribal mentality. It's me against my brother. It's my brother and me against our cousin. It's my cousin, my brother, and me against the other families. It's my family and the other families against the other tribe. It's mm -hmm. all of the tribes against the other nation, right? Right, exactly. You can begin to see how that sense of I'm different. And if you want to say that the survival instinct says, I'm different and better than, therefore I should survive, no matter what the cost to the other is. Yes, exactly. I offer to you that that is not instinct. Exactly. That, that is cultural. So, okay, okay. So, hold time out for one second. This is a very interesting point I want to ask you about. Is it possible that what we consider instinct, natural drive, self preservation, just basic survival mechanism, that, that there is uh, there is a phenomena that takes place where the energy within that instinct, that instinctual pattern, it actually grows into this further group type pattern. And it, 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 so, that, so that the instinct is still there, but now it's identifying with a much bigger uh, range, but it's still within a certain boundary. 
Right? Yeah, I right? think that's how countries can. Well, I, I mean, that's in, the. Well, it, it, it's that that's how they can encourage the youth of the civilization to go out and put their lives on the line. Exactly. You took the words out of my mouth. Other youths. Yes. Exactly. War zone. Exactly. And, and there's very little explanation of how that has to do with the energy of the individual survival. In fact, it's it's counterproductive to that. The people making the decisions to go to war, not the people on the front lines. No, of course not. So this sense of self as totally contained within the envelope of my skin has a lot of drawbacks. Ah, yes, yes, that's that's the root. That's the root. That's the way out, right? Exactly. To I mean I think in most situations in a conversation where people are just openly kind of exploring their ideas and other people's ideas, we, we frequently can come to the agreement that human beings, no matter what part of the world or what costumes they wear or what languages they speak, we have more in common than we have differences. And so why, what is it that makes one group an enemy, right? And I would offer that that, that requires a level of contemplation that goes beyond my body. I mean, not the contemplation of who am I beyond my body. Yes. And that's pretty easily answered. It, the moment you recognize, oh, I have thoughts. Well, where are they? You know, where, are, are my thoughts located in my left shoulder or my right big toe? No, they're right. They're an energy field. I have these strong emotions. Where are they located? We can usually feel emotions in our physical body, but where did they come from to begin with? You know, did my gut create that emotion and, and in response to what, right? A thought, right? Exactly. So begin to then let myself be interested in who am I really, right? That, so to seek out ways to become more aware of the thoughts and to look at them without judgment that, oh, that's a bad thought. I can't have that thought because it's energy. It's not going to go away even if we stuff it down or do something like eat chocolate ice cream so I don't think about it. I don't focus on it anymore, you know, or, or go rob a bank or go, you know, be a shopaholic, go and spend a bunch of money that then you can't pay back because it's on a credit card. Yes, those are all escapes, yes. Yeah, the escape mechanisms, right? What is it about the thoughts that are so threatening to us that we don't want to see them? I would offer that it's usually a culturally, a learned, culturally held judgment that makes us think, oh, this is really bad. I must be bad for thinking this thought. No, basically you're in a human body. Things happen. Things are gonna make you upset. They're gonna make you angry. They're gonna make you <clears throat> judgmental. The critical question is, 
what one am i aware of what's going on before i physically act on it and two having the power to look at it as just a thought i don't have to kill it immediately right i can let it be a thought and as energy's nature is to move it moves on it's when we act on it now that there's more energy around that thought there's more energy around that identity there's more there's more contraction in my life and I'm more likely to react in the same way in similar circumstances in the future. Yes, because each individual is within the realm of all of these societal structures, whatever they are, whether it's the military or it's a religious group or whatever it is, it doesn't, there's always some structure, some family, some culture, some tradition that somebody's part of. It's, it's always, it's there. Nonetheless, it seems to me that there is a possibility of rising above the limitations of those uh, of, of those um, uh, of those group patterns of those groups. Groups are there. I mean, they're they're going to remain, but nonetheless, there's a possibility of further evolution, and and it seems to me this is where the bigger question of conflict really comes into play. You know, one group versus another versus another versus another as opposed to say, even if there are so many different groups, I mean, so so what, why should there be conflict? You know, even if there's disagreement, there's, there's um, multiple different perspectives, why does there have to be conflict? And, and can, you, can you shed some light on why do you think that is? Uh, and how that may relate to this preservation instinct, that somehow that that instinct has gotten into this other realm now. Um, I would offer to you that um, the first thing I thought about as I was listening to you was the phrase, it's time to think outside of the box. And I used to be really irritated when people would tell me that because it was usually at work and I was trying to deal with something that ended up on my desk because nobody else could figure out what to do with it. And um, but what I've come to understand over time is thinking outside of the box, my experience of it is if all the ways I know to deal with this issue have not worked, is there a way I can step back and view it from a different perspective? And that requires not being reactive to the situation, to the problem, to the whatever. And usually that comes with a discipline that we can as human beings develop to <clears throat> not judge ourselves or not judge situations as good or bad, but to look at them as an observer, right? Maybe yes. take, maybe the box is the game I think I'm playing. <laughs> and the only way I can solve whatever dilemma that's in the box is to step outside of the box and look at things dispassionately, right? Mm -hmm. and, and in a way that says, well, if I do this and this will happen and that will happen, is that a desired outcome? No, well, then, and that ability not to be triggered 
in a negative way by a thought or a feeling. I mean, it seems to me what propaganda is, is just going for your gut and making you get really upset and excited and passionate about something that somebody else wants. <laughs> Yeah, right? Exactly. I'm being told that whatever these people will do or that situation is, is bad, 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 without any sort of real consideration of what's really being said here, right? And, and can I step back? Can I step out of the box and look at it and say, really, what's going on here, right? But that requires a level of controlling the learned response that this is bad. I don't want this to happen. The people who think that are bad, or if I think that I'm bad, right? That Going back to the id, right? Those things that come up from the id, oh, you think you desire that, right? Well, that's bad. That's a primal instinct. No, it's not. It's part of being in a human body. Sure. Do I have the power to choose whether this is the right time, place, and situation to enact that, Yeah, that's up to me. And yeah. I would offer to you that we have to overcome a lot of early conditioning by our parents, our families, our cultures, our countries. Sure. To be able to get back to that observer position. Exactly. exactly. I'm shedding all of these layers of identity that say, I'm a person who thinks this way. I'm a person who dresses that way. I'm a person who always does this in these situations. It's like, really? I mean, if I'm told I'm that enough as a little kid, then I try and be that. But the power of moving into adulthood, the power of reason, is that we can actually begin to understand when we're in that middle part of our brain, the limbic system, the emotional brain, and say, okay, I need to take a, a breath here and step out of the box so I can bring the, the rest of my brain online. Yes, yes, very beautifully stated. Yes, definitely, definitely. It's a fascinating thing to look at. Individuals who are um, wanting self-mastery, uh, which is what we're, this is, these are the foundational talks leading, leading to that state. Um, what would you say about the expansion of identity from a boundary into, into a state where there, the, that the boundary may expand, but then there is a realization of the nature of boundary. Yes, and I would offer to you that this whole conversation has been resonant with something I've been hearing for quite a while now, that the state of evolution in humankind now is a evolution of consciousness, not necessarily an evolution of the physicality or brain power even, right? It's consciousness, it's awareness, right? So, and, and I 
that requires a desire to know what that's about, a desire to actually have a pure experience of consciousness, not be told what it is, but actually discover it for ourselves. Yes, exactly, because each human being wants non-limitation, drive to come out of limitation, but along with that, there is need for security. And so the various enclaves, groupism and different um, ideologies and opinions and beliefs that, the, that are going on in the world, they kind of, they tend to provide a certain system of thinking, living, it provides a certain type of security. But at the same time, they are also divisive, which limits self-exploration limits freedom. And this is, a, this is a classic conundrum, how to live in the society with all of its divisions and its enclaves and groupism and, and ideologies while, seek, while evolving into one's own personal freedom where there is freedom of exploration, freedom of thought, freedom of emotion, freedom to question. All such ideas, uh, they need to be hang together. And it's not the easiest thing because any individual brought up in a particular culture, particular tradition, particular way of thinking, there is, there is that development of that individual to that extent, but then, but then the ability to kind of see the limitation of that, that's huge. I, I, I just think the awareness of boundary is, is, uh, is a massive leap, uh, your thoughts on this. Yeah, and I would talk, I, I would offer that for me, the most exciting boundary that as a human we can become aware of is the boundary between our inner world and our outer world. And, you know, people, we, we're here in these vehicles called human bodies, which have brains, which have minds that interpret the sensory input, which is whether it's the, um, the scent, the aroma of some favorite food cooking when we walk into the house or um, anything, right? And, and it, that we become aware of that there's a, a process of looking inward instead of always outward, right? So yes. these basic kind of issues, I don't know how to say this, to put a value on achieving a sense of what's going on in my inner world meaning being aware of the thoughts, being aware of the emotions, being actual, actually aware of the body when it's in a healthy state, not just when it's failing in some way, right? And that that begins this journey into consciousness itself. Yes, yes. It's so much bigger than the envelope of the body. Yes, exactly, which is, which is where the possibility of moving into that pure, undisturbed joy, steadiness, peace, silence, all those things, 
all those words that we use, there is such a possibility, which would also indicate that there is intelligence that awakens, which allows one to interact within limitation without being limited. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I remember um, being involved with a, a, a prison program at one point and, and somebody speaking of, we're all in prison. <clears throat> the prisons of our minds, the limitations that our minds put on us. And again, that's the way I use the analogy of stepping outside of the box, right? You know, you know, Dr. Berman, uh, as you mentioned about the thinking outside the box, something comes to mind about that. I thought I'd share it with you. It's very interesting when we use this expression, think outside the box. I, I, I've thought about that expression over the years also. And it's interesting that any thinking that we do is, a, is within the box. So to think outside the box, one needs to be steady enough to see what is within the box see the box actually, see the, all the boundary of the box, and really take a leap psychologically out of the box, and then that thinking is possible out of the box. Exactly. So, and, and for me, you only get out of the box when you allow yourself to be conscious without judgment. Right, exactly, exactly. And then you realize, oh, the box is an illusion, right? It's somebody's and, yes. idea. It's yes. yeah. something I was taught. Exactly. And also people then who are strongly holding on to beliefs, the ideas, the, the, the patterns of, of human conditioning, one would see that so clearly and one would mindfully, compassionately interact with such individuals without causing them too much agitation, because you cannot disturb somebody too much who is highly conditioned. It, it, is, it is a very careful way of interacting. Uh, what do you say about this? I say yes, and I say the way we begin to develop that skill is to use it on ourselves. So when a thought comes up and there's a knee-jerk re reaction, right, of, oh, I don't want to think that. Um, but no matter what I do, what I think I'm going to do to not think about that, right, <clears throat> how I'm going to divert myself, um, to be able to just say, it's a thought. I, I read something recently that said, if you're in a human body, you're going to experience stinking thinking, right, stinky thoughts, right? doesn't mean I'm a stinky person, no. right? It means that there are thoughts that can come through my mind that I don't particularly want to have. However, if I judge the thought is bad, then if I'm thinking it, then automatically I, I judge myself as bad. And now I'm in this nasty cycle of judgment. It's just about duality. If I can say, oh, it's a thought and go back to whatever it is I want to be focused on. If I'm in meditation, you know a meditation technique. If I'm driving, being more attentive to driving, if, whatever, right? If I'm walking my dog, paying attention to whether he's in the poison ivy now or not. There's a way that we can 
learn to discipline ourselves. One, become aware. That's the first step. Awareness is the, first, the, the biggest step. When we can become aware of our thoughts without judging them, we can observe them as they float away and not get caught in the stickiness of stinking thinking. Yes, yes. Is that? Yes, yes, it does. And in fact, that that is about the quality of one's thoughts. Yeah. I mean, the mind is going to think. Right? Sure. As long as we're drawing the breath in this body, the mind is going to think and it thinks yes. and thinks and thinks. And if you pay attention, you know, if you just watch that stream of consciousness, it's not a whole lot of logic in it unless we're using the mind in a very specific way, just, you know, make things happen in a certain way, solve a problem, get from A to B, whatever it is. Exactly. exactly. But our biology is such that. Um, our brains are wired when they're not, you know, actually being focused by our will and our intention that they go to scanning the environment. What can happen now? What, how do I keep safe? What can happen now? Oh, that person doesn't look like me. I I bet they're bad. What it's just this bombardment, right? So to be able to be conscious and when the stinking, well, when any thought comes, right? To just, oh, that's a thought, right? And then the mind becomes a tool, not the master of our consciousness. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Okay, very good. So we will stop here for today. Very nice. Dr. Berman, thank you very much for your time on this. We will continue along these lines further. Uh, and we'll just go step by step to open these various questions. Uh, is related to self-mastery, personal transformation, human upliftment. And for any of the listeners, please visit us on the web, www.theangelwing.com. We also have our Power Podcast channel, which is available right from the website. Okay, so Dr. Berman, thank you very much for your time and beautiful uh, exposition today.